Exodus chapter 20. It's probably been eight or nine months since we've been in the book of Exodus, and uh, this is a good place to start. And I'm going to turn my mic on. Okay. I just want to encourage all of you to be safe on your way home. Uh, doesn't look like it's snowing anymore, but uh, get your shovels warmed up because you're going to probably need them. We're going to be looking at the first three of the Ten Commandments this morning. Uh, it'll be like uh, watching a machine gun go off because uh, in the next 35 minutes, um, I think I have 27 slides that we're going to look at. And um, each one of them is filled with a bunch of information. But uh, when we get to Mount Sinai, we find that Moses is given the Ten Commandments by God. Uh, they are not the whole of the law, but they are uh, one part of the law. And uh, the first three that we're going to look at today are knowing the real God. And I will tell you that it's going to be a little bit harsh and a little scary at times. When we look at that, next week we're going to look at telling time. We'll look at the fourth commandment. And then we'll look at the six last ones, living in harmony with each other. And then we'll continue on in the book of Exodus. Now, the law we do not live under. In fact, is the law is the bottom line in knowing God's mind. But it is not the last word in understanding God and life. We don't live under the law. That was given to the Israelites. It was given for a time. It was given for a reason so they would know without a doubt what sin is. Remember, the principles found in the law were already in place before the law was given. And those principles continue. But the law itself, we do not live under. But we do, in fact, live in the light of what the law says. So I have no problem preaching it. Because you're going to find that on every one of these points, we're going to look at it kind of like Jesus did. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And then he deals with the heart. He deals with the motives. He puts a higher standard than the law does. And so when you look at that, we're not saying, okay, here's where you live under. It's like, this is the bottom line. God says these things are true. But I want you to live above that. You have privileges, you have responsibilities that they never had. There is nothing that irritates me much more than seeing a coexist bumper sticker on a car. Uh, if you don't know what all those signs are, I know what most of them are. The second last one there is Wicca. The big E is uh, science and all those kinds of things. Now, some of them, uh, you know them, some you don't. But basically, they're saying all gods are the same. The Bible says 100% exactly the opposite. There is only one God that we worship. Fact is, in verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Remember, the Ten Commandments, while a lot of people think they can live by them, every one of them is negative. Think about that. Everyone is negative. It'll cause you to be serious. When you look at this and you go, does God really say that kind of thing? Is that what God thinks? And the answer is, yes, he does, because he has the right to do that. Why does he? First of all, he is the lone creator. We could see this many different places. We could start in the first book of the Bible. We could go all over the place. But in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, it says that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, he is the creator. He is not created. He had no beginning. He has no end. When people ask, well, you say that God created everything. Who created God? Nobody. Why? Because he is above creation. He's, and we'll see it in the next uh, slide. He is self-existing. He had no beginning. He has no end. No one created him. He has always existed. But as the creator and the only creator, he is sovereign. What he says is the law. If we choose to disobey, we pay a consequence. If we obey, there's a blessing that goes with that. But he's a sovereign God, and he gets the right to make the rules. If you invent something or make it, let's say you invent something and you got a patent on it, you can decide what that, what that patent gets used for. You could bury it in a closet someplace. You could burn it, you could sell it, or you give it to somebody, and they can make the product. It's yours. He's the creator. He made us all, and he gets to decide. Wow, that sounds pretty straightforward. It is straightforward. He said he made everything. There is nothing he did not make. He is also self-existing. You know where this verse comes from. It comes from the burning bush incident in the desert with Moses when he said, I, I don't really want to go back there. And so God said to Moses, after Moses asked him, well, who shall I say sent me? He said, you tell them I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am simply means to be. I am the self-existing one. I am the first cause of everything. Nothing existed before me because it couldn't, because I'm in eternity past. And nothing will exist after me because I am the whole way into eternity future. You grasp that? I don't. But that's the God we serve. That's the God of the Ten Commandments. He says, there is no other God. He also is the living God. The only one that's alive. We're going to look at idols here in a moment. But all idols are man's imagination. They're dead. They can't do anything. We only give them power. And demons too. But... He says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I had a teacher way up at Word of Life a long, long, another lifetime ago. He says, it is a sin to make the living Word of God dead or boring. Hopefully I don't do that. I hope I don't bore people. But the point is, he says, the blood of Christ is what gives us a conscience from dead works to serve a living God. If you think serving God is simply sitting in a pew or listening to the praise team or anything, no, He's a living God. This is a living relationship above all else. It's not something that is man-made. It's not something that's dead or boring or dull. I used to think that before as a Christian. Christians are a bunch of fuddy-duddies and they have no fun and there's nothing to it. It's kind of boring and everything else. No, he is a living God. That is not true of the other gods. He is also a jealous God. Normally we think of jealousy as a bad thing, right? Don't be jealous of somebody else. 
That's not necessarily true. We usually think of hate as a bad thing too, but God hates sin. Well, God is also a jealous God. In fact, is let's take it out of God for a second and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There it says that Jesus is, is jealous of the believers as a husband for his wife. You see, there is a place for jealousy in a good sense. Because if you're married and there's a third or fourth person in your relationship, that is a place to be jealous. Because that person doesn't belong there. And every place that God is seen as a jealous God, the context is that the Lord your God is a jealous God. I will have no other gods before me. You see, they're fake. They're not the real thing. He has the right to say, I am jealous and I will not put up with that because they're not the real thing. He's the real thing. You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord whose name is jealous. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's one of the names of God. Right there it is. His name is jealous. He is a jealous God. He will have no other gods. And gods come in all forms. It could be a Buddha. It could be a... You name whatever it is. You can make it a building. I'll show you that in a few minutes. You can make it a mountain if you wanted to. But he is a jealous God and says, you know what? I'm the only one that is worthy of being worshipped. And everything else I'm jealous of and I won't put up with it. He has the right to demand, demand obedience. In Exodus twenty two twenty, we'll come back to this later sermon. But he says... He who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone, notice the singular again, shall be utterly destroyed. Ask the Israelites how that worked out. Because they kept going after idols and finally God said, that's it, I've had it. And he sent them into captivity. He cured them of idolatry, I can tell you that. But man, oh man, everything they had got smashed. Because God will not put up and will not allow his people to worship other gods without judging them. He alone has the right to punish that disobedience. Again, in Judges chapter 10, it says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer deliver you. And he allowed the Assyrians to come in, the Babylonians to come in. And yes, indeed, he did not deliver them. Was he unable to? Oh, he could have done that, but he didn't. Because God is serious. Keep your focus. There is only one God. Jehovah God is that God. Any other God, any other focus is wrong, and he will deal with it. I told you, it's serious stuff. But praise the Lord, we don't live under the law. We have something much better because Jesus alone is the embodiment of God. He is the God-man, God eternal, who took on a human body to come and live among us. John 1.18 says this, No one has seen God at any time. We're going to see why in a moment. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has showed us what God is like. See, at the commandment, it says, don't have any other gods or don't worship idols and those kinds of things. But Jesus Christ came and lived among us. Now, if you use a King James Version, you go, ah, mine reads different than that. And it does. 
Because in King James it says the only begotten Son. Don't get uptight about that because guess what? It's saying exactly the same thing. It's here it says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. The word son means of the same character in nature. I'll give you an example of how it's used in the New Testament. James and John wanted to call fire down on some cities because they rejected Jesus and the disciples. And he called them the sons of thunder. They were like a storm, a lightning storm. They were unpredictable. That was their character. That was their nature. And he rebuked them for that. Well, guess what? Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is God, and He lived among us. And if you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done. And you can see, He had no problem calling out those that were hypocrites and sinful and all that. But on the other hand, He loved us enough to die on the cross for us. That's what God is like. He is an absolutely perfect God. Jesus Christ explained. Folks, you have something the people in the Old Testament under the law never had. They were looking forward to it, but they never had it. We look back and we can look at the perfections of Jesus Christ and say, we know more about God than any of the Old Testament law could ever tell us about God. God alone is pure spirit. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. Why? Because God is pure spirit. You cannot see nor can you represent pure spirit. Pure spirit is not detectable by the normal senses that we have. Supernatural. Don't ask me to explain all of these things, because I cannot. But we have the golden calf there, because it is the best example that I know from the Old Testament of idolatry. And so we're going to look at the whole idea of idolatry. Any representation of God reflects creation, not the creator. There is no doubt about it that creation does show us something about God. But it does not represent God. It represents the work of God, but it doesn't represent God. We're back in Romans chapter 1 again. We've been there several times in the last month or two. For they exchanged the truth of God for lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. It is so. Notice, any representation of God is an idol. It's not the truth. They knew God was spirit. They knew God was eternal and self-existing. They knew all of those things. But what did they do? They brought in a representation. No way, shape, or form can any part of creation, no matter what it is. One time somebody said to me, uh, you need to have a cross at the front of the church so I have something to focus on. That bothered me, folks. Not, I'm not against the cross. <laughs> Obviously not. But if you're saying that's what you focus on, you're wrong. We worship in... Well, I got to go. I'll, I'll get ahead of myself. We'll get to that. How about the golden calf? You know the story. They, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, doesn't come down right away, and the people say to Aaron, make us a god. 
<laughs> they say, we, we took off our earrings, our nose rings, and our gold, and we gave them over to Aaron. He threw them in the fire, and out comes this calf. What a, <laughs> what a rotten story. <laughs> it isn't true at all, because here's what actually happened. He took this, that's the gold, from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. Notice, graven image. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. How stupid is that? They just came from a place where God judged Apis the bull, one of their gods, and now they're out a couple of months, and they're going back and worshiping an idol, a false god. And what they're doing, think about this, the golden calf is being called Jehovah God, Elohim, the God that delivered them from bondage and slavery, who took them across the Red Sea on dry land. They're making an idol to represent the pure spirit God who led them. By the way, it says God was in the cloud and in the fire. He wasn't the cloud and he wasn't the fire. He was in them. Point is, after this, they said, here is, your, here is the Lord who brought you out. Here is Jehovah who brought you out. They're looking at a golden calf and saying, this is God. They know better than that. They changed the truth of God for a lie. God was not very happy with them, as you well know. They burned it up and made them drink the water. I can't imagine what that tasted like, but it wasn't good. He said, you know, you're not going to do this. And by the way, an idol is whatever you put between you and God. This golden calf got between them and God. And you know what else is true? You become like the God you serve. What did they do when they had the golden idol, the golden calf? It says that they had Sunday fun day. They rose up to eat and drink and play. Not a chance. Look the word up, play, and you're going to find out they had a wild party. It's an orgy. It's, a, it's an out-of-control drinking and, and whatever else. Same word that is used when Joseph is accused of molesting Potiphar's wife. And it's used other places. It simply means they were out of control. Why? Because you become like the God you serve. They're not serving Jehovah God. They're serving an idol. God obviously was not happy with them. And he represented of God distracts from worship. Here's the key, and I, didn't, I got it a moment ago. But in John chapter 4, you know it's the woman at the well. The woman at the well, she is there, and she's drawing water at the time when nobody else is there. Jesus comes up and starts talking to her. Two things are wrong with that. Jews, and Jesus was a Jew, they don't like Samaritans, so they don't talk to Samaritans. And she was a woman, he was a guy, and that doesn't work either. So they're talking, and uh, she's interested, and he says, well, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're exactly right. (laughs) You've had a bunch of them, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. You're shacked up with this guy. And she goes, whoa, hold it a second. So now she's really curious, and she says, well, we believe you, you worship on this mountain over here. And you Jews believe you worship in Jerusalem on that mountain in the temple there. 
Notice what they've done. They've taken the God who is spirit and placed him someplace. And that's where you can worship. You can do the same thing when you go to church and you say, I went to church, I worshiped. Oh, you went to church, you went to a mountain, you went to a place. I don't know if you worshiped or not. Because here's what it says. But the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, God has given us the truth. In fact, is Jesus lived it out, but he also gave us the word. But God is spirit. And so worshiping God is not a thing we do. You do that, yes, but it's not, well, you have to do this, or you have to concentrate on this, or you have to see this, or be here. No, no. Worship is way above that, because we worship God in spirit. Our spirit with His spirit. There's the connection there. Look at Romans 8 if you don't believe that. Any representation of God distorts worship. Paul was going into Athens, And when he goes there, uh, he's passing through and he sees this altar. And it says, to an unknown God. Now you understand up on the top of the Acropolis, the guys would get up there and they would discuss anything and everything. Religion, politics, the weather, whatever it was. But they really liked talking about new stuff. That's what they did. So Paul mixes it up with them. And I like this because I think this is the way we approach the world today to witness to them. He says, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He, t- he met them right where they were. They, you want to talk about something new? I got something new for you. By the way, you have a really distorted version of worship because you're worshiping an unknown God. How in the world do you know how to worship an unknown God? You don't, want, you don't know anything about him. He's unknown. You, you don't know what he demands, what he does, what he doesn't do, what he wants you to do. You don't know any of those things. Man, oh man, when you have a representation of an unknown God, that's distorted worship. And fact is, if you're not in the book, you can't serve and worship the God of the Bible either because you don't know it'll be distorted. He says, what you worship in ignorance, let me proclaim to you. And then he went on to proclaim to them that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And there was a reaction to it, no doubt about it. Some believed. Some said, hey, we need no more. And others scoffed at it. You know, basically said he was kind of out of his mind. But you know what? They had an object of worship to an unknown God. Any representation of God misleads people. Paul said it. We'll get back to Paul again in a moment. But he says, you know there's no such thing as an idol in the world. But, and that there is no God but one. The Apostle Paul makes it clear from right from the beginning. There's only one God and there's only one way to worship him. And it's not through an idol. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods... And many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father. He says, oh, there are plenty of idols. There are plenty of other gods. That's why God makes this prohibition. Have no other gods and have no graven images. 
He said, these things are all over the place. But for you, that is not where it is. We need to worship in spirit and truth. Notice the Old Testament just says, don't have an idol. The New Testament says you worship in spirit and in truth. The negative. We have the positive. You can worship God from the heart. The right attitude, the right motive. Any representation of God must be left behind. I really like this verse. One of my my favorite verses in the New Testament. Because it shows conversion. It says they report themselves about us. What kind of reception we had with you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The one true and only living God. There is a change. If we're going to live at the New Testament standard, we're going to turn away from those things that are idols. And idols come in every shape, every form, every direction that you can think of. We need to put that aside. There are people today that their idol is talking about the politics and COVID. And their eyes, you know, that's, that's, we're going to solve that and they think that that's going to be their ministry. No, it's above that. You've got to look above that. I don't care what it is. It could be a philosophy. It could be your job. I, I say power, position, or pesos. It can be anything. Anything that gets behind, between you and God, needs to be left behind. It also, any representation of God has Satan and his demons behind them. He made it clear in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, no, idols are nothing, and the things sacrificed to idols are nothing. It's not going to hurt you if you eat the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. The idols are nothing. But he said, here's what you need to know. Just because they're nothing doesn't mean there's no power. Satan and his demons are behind all false gods, all idols, all of those false things. To mislead, to distort, and to just get your focus in the wrong direction. And if you think that Christians don't at times worship idols, uh, just check your life. That's all I can tell you. Last one, I thought this was pretty clever. I'm not sure if I'm clever or not. But uh, the third commandment is this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished. Who takes his name in vain? This is the one that may get uh, me in trouble with some people at church. That's okay. Um, God says, my name is equal with who I am. The word vain doesn't mean curse or swear. It's going to, you'll, you'll understand how that works. It simply means in a worthless, empty, or futile way. In other words, you are using his name as anything less than his absolute holiness and glory. Any way you use God's name that does not fully, completely give reverence to him, you're taking his name in vain. Now, Is that going to include cursing and swearing and those kinds of things? The answer is yeah. In the Old Testament, it didn't say don't use curse words and, you know, don't do these kinds of things. It just said don't take God's name in vain. Well, guess what? We don't live under the law. We live in the light of the law, but we live at a much higher standard. What do I mean by that? First of all, let's look at something. God's name is equal to his person. If someone comes to you and says, I know Paul Mulfair, there are absolutely things that come to your mind immediately. 
I don't know what they might be. They might be bad things in my case. But the point is, a name represents something. And it absolutely represents something. In, in garden, I haven't used any garden tractor pulling illustrations lately. But you know what? In garden tractor pulling, everybody knows who I am now. They all know me. I don't know half of them because, well, anyway, I'm the only pastor there. But you know what? My credibility and my integrity are above and beyond even giving the gospel because they're not going to even listen. If my name is mud, they're not going to listen to a thing I say. Because my name is equal with who I am. And the way they see me, that's what they're going to associate with my name. Here's what it says. And and this is why I told Will earlier, the songs we sang today, man, they are right on this point. God highly exalted him, that's Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Above every name. I think we actually sung that. Sang that. Sung, sing, song, something like that. Anyway, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and earth. Notice it's always all-encompassing. Under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Names mean something. Words mean something. And in this case, it is absolutely critical. It's an absolute The name of God should never in any way, shape, or form be disregarded, uh, brought down, and destroyed in any possible way, degraded in any way. His name is equal with who He is. Number two, using God's name is the same as worshiping Him. In Psalms, the, the whole book of Psalms, there are hundreds of places where the name of God is used. Just the name of the Lord or the name of God or whatever. Hundreds of them. I'm just picking one. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and the heavens. I picked this one because it kind of backs on, uh, piggybacks on each other. The name of the Lord, praise it. The name of the Lord is excellent, and the glory is above heaven and earth. His name is way above anything else in this whole earth. My name, your name, doesn't matter. Garden Chapel, doesn't matter. His name is there. And when we use His name, we are giving reverence to Him. We are worshiping Him. Keep that in mind because we're going to get to the end of the sermon, and you may not like what I'm going to say. The New Testament calls misuse of God's name as blasphemy. Blasphemy is to speak evil or to speak lightly of something, to malign or abuse something. In James chapter 2, verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That's the name of Christ. Blasphemy. When we use Christ's name in less than total reverence, we are being blasphemous. Think about that. Because we're going to see a few things here in a moment. The New Testament bans all shameful, empty, and useless words. Remember, the Old Testament under law just says don't use the name of the Lord in vain. The New Testament standard is hugely higher than that because it says every careless word that you use, you got to account for. Boy, I'll tell you what. I'm glad for mercy and grace. Going to get an amen there? Because we all have done this. 
But he says, you've got to answer for every word. Verbiage means something. I don't care if you're angry. I don't care if you got hurt. I don't care if somebody wronged you. Words mean something. When you use them, you're going to be, have to give an account. He says, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Yeah, the standard is much, much higher. Anybody who wants to live under the law, you can say, well, I didn't curse, use God's name and, and curse. I didn't use Jesus' name and curse word. You know, so I'm okay. No, the New Testament, much higher standard. Why? Because we have much more. We have seen, we are the beneficiaries of the complete, perfect, and finished work of Christ. We have a much higher standard. We're held to that standard. New Testament uh, bans all of these things. And he says in, in Colossians, he says, from all abusive speech, shameful, disgraceful things that come out of our mouth. It can be nasty words to somebody else. Whatever it is, he says, it's no good. He puts it in with a whole lot of other things like anger, wrath, malice, slander. And he says, no abusive speech. Remember your mom said, watch your mouth. And if you don't do that again, it's going to get peppered or soaped out or whatever. Uh huh. Well, God, a whole lot more than your mother. How's that? I remember one time when I was a kid, I was probably 10 years old, and I said a word that my cousin used. Cousins will get you in trouble all the time. My dad said, what did you say? <laughs> Nothing. I know you said something. I was not going to repeat it because I like my head on my shoulders. But, um, and I don't remember what the word was, but it was a bad one. But he says, you know, no abusive speech. That means bad stuff toward other people, not even necessarily cursing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such as is good for edification that may need, meet the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. That word unwholesome means unfit for consumption, unclean, impure. You don't pick a tomato out of your garden and go and bring it to church and say, Hey, I, I brought you a tomato from my garden. It's all rotten and the bugs are in it and everything else and give it to you. No, you go, no, you wouldn't do this. Unfit for human consumption. He's saying any word unfit for human consumption. By the way, if you think a rotten tomato is bad, how about when the potato goes bad in the bottom of the potato sack? You think your house is dying. You know, it's, it's not fit. You get rid of it. He's saying that's it. Get rid of it. It's not wholesome. But the very next chapter, he goes on to list a whole bunch of things that should not be true of us. And he says, let there be no filthiness, coarse, common, ugly talk. Stuff that should never come out of our mouths. Base means it's just ugly. Silly talk. Normally I use the word stupid and then I go, no, it's not really stupid, it's foolish. In this case, the word stupid means exactly what this is. Stupid. It's foolish, but it's also stupid. You're just not too bright if you use this. And then the next one, coarse jesting. Oh, it's funny. It's funny, but it's not proper. Notice what it says at the bottom. Which are not fitting. Something that should never come out of our mouth. It's rude. It's vulgar. It's degrading. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. 
He says, it's not only don't take the name of the Lord in vain. He says, all words, watch your mouth. Because we live at a higher standard than even the law demanded. Now, this last part's the one that gets my mouth dry. You know what slang is? You know what a euphemism is? It's a substitute way of saying something that is blasphemous, offensive, or taboo. In other words, we would not say, use Jesus' name in a curse or when we're mad. Oh, no, 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 we won't use God's name in vain. Or we won't use some other things. For example, most of these euphemisms are about religion or the Bible or God, bodily functions or sex. If I was doing a uh, Sunday school class with adults and maybe teenagers, I would go into detail and probably make your hair stand on end if you have any left about the words that are used by Christians and by the world that absolutely are simply a substitute for the name of God or other things that you would never use the real word. You say, well, I didn't use that word. Well, then tell me what that expression means. And when you do that, you have just used the word. Because everything means something, and I'll just tell you, this comes at the end, is if you don't know what a word means, don't use it. And you can look, everything I'm going to tell you next, you can go look it up and you can go look up the rest of it. It's all there. Uh, and I've known this stuff for years. I've just never preached on it. How about, oh my God, OMG, all over the internet. People use it all the time. That's taking God's name in vain. Straightforward. That's not just the New Testament. That's straightforward. Oh my God, my Lord. You know, all those kinds of things. Anytime we use God's name in less than 100% reverence and for His glory, we're taking His name in vain. We're treating it lightly, empty, worthless. Things like G's or G's. Yeah, G's. Yeah, or G whiz. By the way, you know what G's whiz means? Jesus whiskers. How many people use these things all the time? You know what? Look it up. If you're using the, the, the slang word or the euphemism, you're saying the same thing. Golly gosh, check it out. It means God. Point is, if you don't know what it means, you say, well, I didn't know. People said that to me after first service. I didn't know what that meant. You know what? Don't use words you don't know what they mean. Because if you do, you realize, whoa. And by the way, I am not pointing any fingers at you because I've done all, uh, oh my God, I've never used, I don't think. But the others, I've used them. You know what? I'm as convicted as I hope you are. But you know what? Remember, it's not only the names of God, and I'm not even dealing with the rest of it, but all those other words that we use a, a word that sounds a little bit like it, or we know it's a substitute for it. God says, don't use them. You're going to give an answer for that. Now you say, so how do you use God's name? Well, I got one really good one. You can get all kinds of them. You might express at a beautiful sunset, wow, that's really, you know, God's great or something like that. Or you could say, praise the Lord because something good happened. That's using God's name rightly. The one I immediately went to, a genuine reverence for who God is and what he has done would be Thomas. He saw the hands. He saw the side. Didn't even touch them. 
my Lord and my God. We live at a higher standard, folks. The law, down here someplace. It's the minimum. Does show us sin, does show us what's wrong. But if we use, if we allow anything to come between us and God, it's an idol. If there's anything that's more important than God, we have another God. And if we're using words that are careless and abusive and crude and crass and coarse and cursing or or whatever else it is, God says, no, that's not you. Why? It's not fitting. That's not what our mouth is made for. Our mouth is made rather for giving praise. Whoop, um, I have to go back two slides. Forget it. But it's for not fitting, but for giving praise to God. Folks, if it convicts, wonderful. If you're mad at me, well, you can be mad at me. But the truth of the matter is, we need to come to face with this. The world that I live in from when I was a kid to now has gotten so coarse and vulgar and just downhill in language, and the Internet hasn't helped it any. Um, and I, I'm just challenging you, let's live above the standard. Let's live for God's glory, for His honor, and the praise of Him. Let's make sure our mouth has what's fitting coming out of it. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, these are not easy things to talk about because they, they stomp on all of our toes. But I pray that we would endeavor to live above what the world shows us. That we would honor God in focusing on Him and not allowing other things to take His place. And that our words would reflect who He is also and what we, what we believe about Him by not using His name in a light or worthless or empty way. And not allowing our words to take away from our testimony. That when we use the name of the Lord, people would know that we have reverence. And we worship Him. And we exalt Him. And Him alone. Lord, thank You. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God. And be careful as you drive home.